Good morning. You're much louder than the people I usually talk to who are under the age of 17 normally, so. Um, if you could turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, um, the, focus, the, the focal point we're going to look at is verses 21 through 24, but for context, I want to go with 20 through 26. So again, Matthew chapter 5. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge. And the judge deliver thee to the officer, and be cast into prison. Verily I say unto you, thou shalt by no means come out thence, until thou hast paid the othermost farthing. So, this is the word of God. Let me pray for us one more time. God, just uh, thank you that we have the opportunity to look at your word, to look at what you have to say, look at the exact words that you have said, and um, how we can uh, apply those to ourselves, how we can glorify you in the process. And right now, as we go through these verses, let us be able to see the connection of how Scripture all weaves together. And uh, just thank you for that in your name. Amen. Okay, so when I was looking through this passage, a couple of things stood out to me. And uh, one thing I thought was really interesting is I feel like this passage connected very well to what Pastor Tony talked about last week. Because uh, he connected to Ecclesiastes, and he did it with Ecclesiastes, and he closed out with 12, verse 13, which was the idea of, uh, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter, fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the duty of man. And that is one of the things that he closed out with in Ecclesiastes. Pastor broke it down for us very well. And when we go to this passage in Matthew, he is talking about the Sermon on the Mount. He's in that, he's in the middle of it. And he's talking to people, and then he begins with verse 20, and he says, you have to be more righteous than the Pharisees. So the Pharisees were people that actually believed they had everything nailed down. So Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, where it says to fear God, keep his commandments, they thought they had that perfect. They, I mean, there's nobody more righteous than them, essentially. Um, but the reality is it goes deeper than just what's on the surface. And that is something that, again, Pastor pointed out last week. And in verse 13, uh, 14, sorry, past verse 13, God brings into work every, or brings every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So God knows every little thing, including the internal stuff. And that is the focus that um, we need to look at today is we're looking at the inward 
heart and the inward obedience because that is what Jesus points out towards. So again, the Pharisees, these Jewish leaders, they believed that they could do, they had everything right. They literally looked at it with a legalistic viewpoint. If I don't murder, I'm golden. If I do whatever the Ten Commandments say, I'm perfect and I don't have to worry about anything else because apparently they believe that they could get to heaven on their own righteousness, on their own actions, on their own ability to do things. And then Jesus decides to throw a curveball at them and say, well, actually, no, you can't get to heaven on your own accord. You can only get to heaven through Christ and through uh, what is in your heart and the changing of our heart can only happen through God. Um, so then that kind of goes into one of my first points for this, which is the heart of the law. So if I'm going back to the Matthew passage of 21 and 22, which is the main focus of what he has here, um, and I have tabs, but apparently I'm still not very fast at flipping through things. Um, so verses 21, he says, You have heard that it was said by them of old, Thou shalt not kill, and whoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. So the idea was, you have heard that you're not supposed to do this. You have one of the commandments that says, don't kill people. Okay, that seems pretty straightforward. But then he goes into verse 22. And he says, but I say unto you, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, but whosoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. So he takes it to the beginning, which is, you've heard this commandment, but guess what? It's not about what's on the outside, it's about what's on the inside. It's about your heart. It's about whether your heart is telling, um, whether your heart is um, angry against somebody. And if it is, then you're in danger. Um, when he goes through this section, so one of the things that came out to my mind when he talks about this is, one, Jesus isn't changing the law at all. He doesn't, even though you know, he's God and everything else. He doesn't change it. He clarifies the law. He clarifies that the law isn't about what's on the outside. The law is also about what's on the inside. And whatever you do on the outside, um, that isn't going to be enough to get you to heaven. What God does to you on the inside is what is the most important thing. So he clarifies it. And while he's speaking, I mean, by the end of this section, um, in Matthew 7, 20 and 29, it talks about how the crowds were amazed because he was somebody who talked with authority. He spoke like nobody ever has before. Even the scribes and other people of the law, they didn't speak as he did because he had that authority to speak that way. Um, so then going through this particular section, one thing that came to my mind is if you're familiar with a street preacher from Australia called Ray Comfort, he does something where he loves to um, do street preaching, but instead of just standing out there and saying everything he could possibly say, what he does is he goes out and he tries to find individual people and he'll ask them questions. And he usually goes through the Ten Commandments and he'll, and this is one of them right here, I've said you, you shall not murder. And he'll go up to the person and say, okay, tell me, have you ever murdered somebody? And they're like, no, I haven't. Um, and he'll usually say in the same process, do you think you're a good person? And usually, usually because it's somebody off the street, they say, yes, I'm a good person. Okay, well, let's see how good of a person you actually are. Then he goes through, have you ever committed adultery? No, I haven't committed adultery. Well, Jesus says, if you've looked at somebody with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Have you ever looked at somebody with lust in your heart? And if the person's honest, they're going to say, yes, I've done that. Um, same thing here. It's like, 
if you've looked at somebody with hatred in your heart, you have committed murder in your heart. And he'll ask the person that, and they'll be like, okay, it, I've been caught, yes, I've, I've hated somebody, so therefore I have murdered them in my heart. And by the end of it, you go through everything saying, okay, so you are an adulteress, a thief, a liar, and a murderer at heart. What will happen when you go up to heaven? What will happen when you stand before God? What is he going to say? And it's like, well, obviously, I'm not good enough to get into heaven. That's usually the response. And he takes it all the way back. Well, guess what? You're not good enough. And there's a good news that comes along with that. And that is the heart of everything. And that is you can have that changed life through Christ. And he is using this to emphasize that you need to have that changed life through him. And you can't do it on your own. Um, that was just something that stuck out to me with this particular passage. All of the Sermon on the Mount, he says that over and over and over again, that you can't do it on your own righteousness. You never can. You can only do it on Christ, on Christ alone. Um, but like I said, that particular way, the master thing, which I, I really always enjoy because you never know what somebody's going to say. Sometimes people say they still should get into heaven, which just clarifies they haven't read the scriptures enough yet. Um, but either way, uh, Going forward on that, yes, so going forward, when he's talking in um, all of this stuff, the people he's talking to, by the way, the Pharisees, he's talking to the crowds, he's talking to the people that um, believe that whatever the Pharisees say is what they have to do. So he's using this context with those people, and he's trying to pull away from the idea of legalism, because that is the idea that the Pharisees are going into. That is the idea that people believe will get them into heaven. If I do X, Y, and Z, if I follow the letter of the law, I'm going to get into heaven. And he decides, well, relationships are important. Uh, forgiveness is important. Now, let's use this as our example uh, to say that you can't do it on your own, um, that it's all about a heart issue. And I think, yeah, so during this, uh, during last week when I was first looking into this, and I started thinking about legalism and a heart issue and everything else. I was trying to think of what legalism looks like sometimes in my life, and then conveniently I looked up from my kitchen table and I saw my beloved almost four-year-old daughter. We, by the way, we have two couches in our house. We have a couch in the living room that they can do whatever they want to. They can jump off of it, have fun with it, tear it up, tear it up whatever. Then we have a couch in the dining room that's the no-jumping couch. You can only sit on it, nothing else. My daughter decided to, while I was sitting there staring at her, she took all the pillows off the couch, put them on the floor. She climbed up onto the couch, kind of looks at me, and then jumps off the couch onto the pillows. And I'm like, okay, why are you doing this? We've clearly told you you don't do this kind of stuff. You know that. So I brought her over and I asked, well, what are you doing? And she's like, I forget the exact word she used. I'm like, well, we've told you you don't jump off the couch. And she's like, I know, but I'm not jumping off the couch. I'm like, I'm right here. I'm staring at you. What are you doing then? She's like, I'm not jumping. You told me not to jump. I'm walking off the couch. <laughs> same, same idea here. Her heart was far away from the directions that she's been given, which is don't jump from the couch. Instead, she looked for every tiny little loophole to get around that idea of jumping off the couch. Same idea with these Pharisees and the Jewish leaders and everything else. They're looking for every little loophole to get around it so they don't actually have to do what they don't want to do. They can still do what they want to do and honor God at the same time. Um, and that's what Jesus does a really good job of pulling down and pulling those people away from. Now, verses uh, 
21 and 22. Now, 22, when he says raka, by the way, um, it's not really a word we use that much anymore. Actually, it's a word we don't use anymore because it's not English. It's a um, Greek word, actually. It's one of the few times in um, Scripture, that, at least for the King James, it actually kept the Greek word instead of trying to translate the word. And raka literally means that you're calling somebody empty-headed or fool or anything else along those lines. So Jesus is telling them in 22 or... Uh, yeah, in 21 and 22, that if they murder somebody, they're held accountable to the courts. They have to go to the Jewish law. Um, if they tell somebody, another Jew, that you're foolish and they kind of speak bad of them, they could maybe get in trouble. But then he also takes it a step further again to say, if you're calling somebody a fool, if you're going beyond what the law says and you're trying to get around the law, you may be able to get around the law, but you're still not going to get around God. Thou fool, thou shalt be in danger of the hellfire. So even if you get around the law, you circumnavigate, which is, again, what people have always been trying to do, you're still going to be held accountable to God in the end. So then if I go on to verse 23 next, he talks about in verse 23 the humility to reconcile. So 21, 22, he brings up the whole idea of what everything looks like. Uh, the law says one thing, we're taking it a step further. Now, next, he's coming with the idea of humility and how we have to have humility to reconcile. We have to be able to find a way to work with people, to find forgiveness, to be at peace with them, essentially. So, verses 22 and 23. Again, 23, are, sorry, verses 23 and 24. 23 says, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First, be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. So, in this particular part of the passage, God essentially is placing responsibility onto us. Um, one of the things that I've noticed is a lot of times we'll want to be like, well, if somebody else did something that's on them, I don't want to try to deal with or reconcile. I'll try to ignore it. But God actually commands us, and he says, leave your gift before the altar and go thy way. Be reconciled to thy brother first and then come back. He still wants us to honor him, to uh, uh, really have a gift or a sacrifice to him. But before that, we are also to be reconciled. We are to have the humility to actually go to the person that either we have wronged or somebody that we think may have actually wronged us to try to find a way to reconcile with them. Um, just when I was looking through this, one of the things I noticed was just if our brother has an offense against us, we are to go to him. That really is the heart of what Christ is trying to get at here. If somebody is upset at us and we are aware, we need to reconcile. Of course, he doesn't have an asterisk down that says if we reconcile, it's going to be perfect or that everything's going to be, you know, holding hands, singing kumbaya, all that kind of fun stuff. That's not necessarily going to happen. Actually, what might happen is it still doesn't go right. But the heart of the matter is that we have to go before somebody that um, we have something with and try to seek that reconciliation. And then you also have to go back because one part of Scripture needs another part of Scripture to support it. If you go back to verse 9, Jesus proclaims, blessed are the peacemakers. So he actually says in Matthew 5, 9, you have, I mean, a peacemaker is what is blessed. 
And then beyond Matthew 5, 9, he goes beyond that, and he says in verses 10 through 11, which I'll read those. So he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And then he goes on and says, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. That end part is the important part there, for my sake. Um, Sin should not be something that goes between us and one of our brothers. Or I shouldn't say one of our brothers. It shouldn't be something that falls between us and another person ever. And if it does, that's where it comes where we have to be able to reconcile, that we have to be able to seek that reconciliation. Um, That's why I like 9 through 11, because when I'm looking at the fact that I have to leave my gift at the altar, I have to find a way to reconcile with somebody. Well, does that mean I have to reconcile at every single little circumstance? I mean, do I have to reconcile every little thing? Well, no. You need to reconcile when there's sin involved as blocking something between you and your brother. Um, We should always be seeking to offer up that sin to Christ and up to God. But also, when we notice it, he does expect us to go to other people to be able to reconcile that sin with those other people as well. Um, Again, that particular passage, or, or that particular section of the passage, brought to my mind another favorite verse of mine, which is Romans twelve eighteen. So if you guys can flip really quickly to Romans twelve eighteen, that again connects to reconciliation. In Romans twelve eighteen, Paul, who is talking here who, by the way, used to be of the scribes and Pharisees and and all those high-end people that thought they had everything right until he realized he was wrong and he doesn't have anything right. Um, But that particular person, this is what he says in this passage of Romans, which is, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. In that particular passage, live peaceably with all men. First, it has to depend on you as much as possible. You do have that motive, or you still have that job to do, but at the same time, you can't force anything to happen. You have to do what your responsibility is that God has given you. And then it goes beyond that, and this is the part that I think is a little more interesting, and that is where he says, all men. So the very end of that verse, he says, all men. In the Greek, it's pos anthropos, which is translated two different ways. It could be individual as a single person or collectively as all. Um, But either way of how it's translated, it's translated as an all or every single person, which also includes every single person that we don't like. Um, Christ does, you know, point that out, or Paul points that out, God points that out. It's easy to forgive and to reconcile with somebody that we do like, Um, Like a spouse, I mean, that's pretty easy to reconcile. Hopefully, it's pretty easy to reconcile with your spouse if you have something that comes up because you love them, you're committed to them. But at the same time, it's not easy to reconcile with somebody that you might not be as friendly with or maybe not as friendly to you or you don't like them. Um, I was trying to think about it for myself. One of the things that always bugs me is when I see the coexist bumper stickers on cars. I'm sure some some of you have seen those before. When I think of the not easy people, it's the people that tend to have those bumper stickers when I talk with them. Not that my neighbor has those bumper stickers, but I'm pretty sure he probably does. Um, But either way, I still have the responsibility to be 
um, loving, forgiving, and reconciling with him if I have a beef. I get along with the guy pretty well, but um, I still have that responsibility to get along with him regardless. Um, that's what God is commanding for us to do. But of course, it means I can't let sin get between me and them. If what's getting between me and them is me standing up for Christ and speaking the truth in love, then there's nothing I can do about that because I'm doing exactly what God's word is commanding me to do. Um, so again, God expects us to have the humility to do both, to reconcile uh, with either types of people as much as it depends upon us. Now, again, going back to this Matthew passage, it's the idea of an authentic gift. We are giving an authentic gift to God, but we can only give that authentic gift to God through reconciliation. Um, Jesus expects us to be the peacemakers before we truly can worship him. Now, this particular area verses in uh, verse 24, I have a ton of different passages of scripture because I just started looking through it and I realized that the whole Bible, funny how that happens, but the whole Bible connects with each other. And um, I'm going to go through a few passages and um, for the sake of time, I'm not going to say you have to flip to them. I'll just read them off. The first one I have is Micah 6, 6 through 8, which is where God... um, looks for the heart. He looks for a heart. He wants us to have a heart of uh, flesh and not a heart of stone is what he's talking about in Micah. And let me just read that off for you really quickly. Micah 6, 6 through 8 says, Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with thy God. And that is one of the biggest things that he has down for us, is that we are to walk humbly. So the idea of the humility to reconcile is so important because... As Paul talks about in Romans, we have to be able to reconcile. We need that humility, which we can obviously only get that humility from Christ because if I try to be humble myself, I am going to mess up every single time. And believe me, I've tried, and I've messed up every time. So uh, we can't do it ourselves. We can only do it with God. And that is something he expects of us. So we have to do something. He has an expectation of us, but he also provides us the avenue of how to get it. So my next point, or one of my, uh, yeah, the next point is relationship over ritual. So again, 23, 24, he's not looking for the idea of rituals. He's looking for the relationships. He's looking for what is the heart? What is our heart motive? Do we have a heart of flesh or do we have a heart of stone? The Pharisees, the people that were listening to Jesus at the time, they had a heart of stone. So when they heard him talk about the heart, they what makes sense, got pretty angry. Um, They also got angry when he told them that they were whitewashed tombs, and he also said that you're of your father the devil, so he really didn't make friends with the religious leaders at the time period. Um, But again, verses 23, 24, taking it a step further to say that we're not going to be hollow on the inside, but we need to have that heart of flesh. Um, In verse, and let me uh, just... Go to that point, leaving your offering, and then you are supposed to go out and reconcile. 
uh, in Matthew 9:13 and 12:7, he makes a comment. In both of those times, he makes the comment about how he will have mercy and not sacrifice, which again connects to Micah 6. God wants to have mercy. He doesn't want to have sacrifice. He doesn't want to have an empty motivation of doing something or a motivation of doing something for yourself. He wants to have a motivation to do things that are truly of a changed heart. Um, I just find that really interesting that he talks about, I will have mercy and not sacrifice over and over and over again. He says it multiple times in Matthew. He says it in Micah. He makes references to it. And one of them I do want to flip to and read for you is Hosea 6.6, because that is one of the um, earlier times also where he mentions it. And I don't know if you're very familiar with the book of Hosea. It's one of the smaller prophets. Um, it's where a prophet is married to a harlot because God commands that the prophet do that because he uses them, uses this marriage as a way of showcasing his love or his unconditional love for Israel despite the fact that they keep running away from him. Um, and yes, I just did bring up the word harlot in church. You can always talk about it with your kids later if you want to. Um, but anyways, Hosea 6.6 6 says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. There it is again. Mercy, not sacrifice. He wants the heart before he wants the actions. And the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. So he wants the knowledge of God. He wants mercy. He wants the internal, what's in the heart, before he wants the external and the actions on the outside. The actions without the heart are empty and hollow. Is again, keeps getting brought up by Christ, keeps getting brought up in the word of God. Um, in this particular instance with Hosea, he is Hosea is the prophet, Gomer is his wife, and he's referencing the relationship and everything going on with them. He's referencing how much he unconditionally um, loves and forgives deeper than anybody or any one of us can ever imagine. And the phrase used emphasizes the law's moral standard over the ceremonial aspects. So if I'm saying the same thing over again, it's because Jesus kept saying the same thing over again and over again because it was so important. The inward and moral precepts are much more important than the outward and ritualistic aspects of what we do. And that, again, is what he's talking about when he's talking about forgiveness, about the relationships. We're not supposed to have the outside that looks like we're nice to somebody, the outside that looks like... Um, we have anything going on, we're to have the inside that truly forgives, that truly seeks to honor God in all of our relationships. Um, which, just to point out, all of our relationships includes our relationship with Christ. So one of my last passages I wanted to look at was Philippians 3.8. Um, again, Philippians is written by Paul. Paul seems to have a lot of smart things to say. God, God really used him for a lot of things and a lot of good things. Um, in particular now in Philippians 3.8, so Paul was one of those people who believed he could keep the law perfect, that whatever he did on the outside was good enough, and he could cut corners on the inside or have an empty inside, but he was still, you know, doing okay because he had that good outside, he had the good actions. Well, he talks about that after Christ blinded him, threw him off, you know, horse, all, all that kind of stuff, and basically slapped him upside the head and said, quit going after me, actually work for me. And then Paul, of course, had to say yes. Um, but Philippians 3.8 says, and this is Paul again, yet doubtless and account all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but 
stung that I may win Christ. So this is one of those times where the English just doesn't quite get stuff across. So Paul's talking about it. You can go all the way back to Matthew 20, which is the righteousness he had was never good enough. You can never have good enough righteousness. Um, be the equivalent of saying today that you have to be more righteous than even your favorite preacher, which every one of you probably have. Somebody that you can think of that you think is a pretty righteous preacher. Well, they still fall short of the glory of God, and they still need God to be able to um, go into heaven. They can't do it on their own. Paul was one of those people, and he realized that. And this particular passage states that, obviously, we're not going to heaven on our righteousness. Paul's not going on his righteousness. He talks about all the great stuff he does. And then he says that all of his good works are done. And the word for it in Greek is skubalon, which I won't go there, but it reminds me of a cartoon character for some reason. But either way, skubalon is the word. It literally translates as refuse or excrement. And it was a medical term, and it was also considered a vulgar term. It was two different things. It was vulgar. I mean, it was one of those times where Paul was like, okay, how can I get across to people that all the good things that I can do on my own are worthless? I can use this word for it. So they're going to pay attention when I use this word that means refuse or excrement. But it's also a word that doctors would use to literally mean the refuse of a patient during the middle of a um, surgery or whatever, whatever else was going on and how they did their stuff back in that time period. So it's a medical term, it's an uncomfortable term, and he uses that to emphasize that his righteousness is worthless compared to anything else, or com sorry, compared to Christ, and compared to being in Christ, and to being under Christ, and to seeking Christ in all that he does. Um, and just to translate that idea into today, there's the idea of cultural Christianity and true Christianity. Um, this is something I've been thinking about because I was looking around and our country that we live in is, as I, as I wrote down here, there's a divide between the secular culture and the true Christian culture. We haven't seen the divide ever before like this today. There's always been a divide. It's just been much more obvious today and a lot more drastic today. Um, but even despite that divide, I've noticed that there's still very strong cultural Christianity stuff that often I've been able to sit down with somebody, talk to somebody, um, being out of school, I'm giving tours to families all the time, I'm getting different stories from different people, I'm talking to different backgrounds, um, and I'll see and I'll talk to people that have this idea that they're doing all the good stuff on the outside, but it's very apparent that they're empty on the inside, that they don't have that heart that has been changed by God, and that is something that I, I see around me all the time, and I know for a fact that a lot of you either have been there or have seen it around you as well, and that our culture, the idea of culture of Christianity embraces the outward ritualistic view of the Pharisees, but it's still missing something because it's still missing the heart of what it is, the heart of what we need, which is a changed heart. And again, I keep going back to this too, but a changed heart, a heart of flesh that truly bows to Jesus Christ in every aspect. And quite simply, when our heart is changed by Christ, that's when we also have the humility to reconcile. So that goes all the way back to one of the previous points, which is God expects us to have that humility to reconcile. The only way to have it is to have a changed heart. The only way to have a truly changed heart is through Christ Jesus alone. 
And then uh, the final point that I have for you is by the grace of God. So I keep saying it, I keep seeing it, I kept looking at it in Matthew 5, and that just is what stood out to me, is God demands relationships, God demands us to have a heart that seeks to honor Him in all things, but then also only God is the one, God alone is the one that can give us that heart. So in reality, the grace of God is telling me, or through this passage, it's not about the letter of the law, it's not about every... um, little mark of what the law says, because you can find loopholes around that. It's about the spirit of the law instead. It's about the heart that is behind it. Um, He gave us 10 commandments, not so we can have a list of rules and say, okay, how can we make sure we follow every little one? How can we make sure that we don't actually murder somebody? Well, that's an easy one, so I'll ignore that one, because I'm not going to kill somebody. Um, At least, I hope most of you believe that. Um, If not, there's plenty of other verses I can give you later on. Just ask. Um, But either way, yeah, all these things are easy to do. Well, Jesus is telling us it doesn't matter how easy it is to do the Ten Commandments. You're always going to fall short. So what happens when you fall short? You have to go back to Christ. And really, that's the good news I kept seeing in this passage is that we can fall short of it. Christ has a very high demand for us, but Christ fulfills that need for us to actually reach what he demands of us. Um, And then... I can actually, I'll, I'll jump to the faith challenge really quick before I do my closeout here, which the faith challenge is true forgiveness happens when we have a heart of flesh, which God demands and he gives to those who ask. Um, so again, we have to have a heart of flesh. That's where forgiveness, that's where true relationships come from. God demands that from us, but he also provides an avenue for us to be able to do that. And that avenue is through him, through being able to rest in him. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, A new heart will I give you. I will take out the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. God is the one that gives us that heart. Um, The last final passage I had, because I like Paul, and uh, I like a lot of what he says, and it connects to something that one of the popular English Puritan preachers stated when I was looking through commentaries. Um, There's a Puritan, Matthew Henry, who makes a comment on this passage, and I really like it, and I think it might be a good way to close out um, for today. And that is in Philippians 4.13, which I feel like almost everybody in here could probably say the verse by heart, but it's, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. I'll be honest, it kind of drives me crazy whenever I see it on like a gym wall or something like that, because it seems like it implies, well, that means I can throw a baseball really well, or I can throw a basketball through a basketball hoop really well through Christ who strengthens me to do it. Paul doesn't really talk about that. He's not talking about sports. I mean... I'm pretty sure Paul doesn't care that much about sports. I could be wrong, but I don't think he does. What he does care about, though, is what a changed heart, what a changed life under Christ looks like. And that is what he's referring to as his changed life. So in Philippians 3, he's talking about all this great stuff that he did, and then God changes his life, and everything he did is worthless except for Christ, or everything is worthless except for knowing who Christ is. And then he goes beyond that and says... Christ is the one that gives me strength to do what I need to do. And Matthew Henry says this in his commentary, and I quote, We have need of strength from Christ to enable us to perform not only those duties which are purely Christian, but even those which are the fruit of moral virtue. We need his strength to teach us to be content in every condition. So, 
every condition. We always have to have content, but we can only do that through the strength of God. In this particular moment, it's the contentness to be able to have a true God-honoring relationship with other people, to have the ability to reconcile with other people, and to make sure that we don't have anything blocking our relationships. So, let's pray. God, just thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to look at your word. Thank you for the fact that what is in the Old Testament, what is in the New Testament, go together. And truly, the Bible is a story that is woven, that is directly inspired by you. And thank you that we can go to it, we have the freedom to be able to read it, to be able to ponder it. And I pray that we can have lives that are softer-hearted, lives that seek to honor you in our relationships, seek to forgive others, to seek to uh, um, do whatever it is that you expect of us, but also do it with your strength. And I pray for this in your name. Amen.